Our, our children can head back to be with our transformation station team. And uh, the kids, you'll see signs, parents will see signs for each of the different age groups. Um, and they'll take care of the kids well downstairs. And uh, for the rest of you, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 11 this morning of Paul's letter to the Romans, starting in verse 33. And uh, as you turn there, I'd like to add my greeting to John's greeting. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve also as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And so I know uh, we have a lot of new faces in the house today, people off summer schedules and getting settled into fall routines and college students new to the area. So I uh, look forward to getting to know you. And um, it's a privilege to have you with us this morning as we worship God. Um, now, most of you, if you have been around for the past month or have been reading your emails, you know that Redemption Hill is on the brink of change. So this Sunday is our last Sunday in this space at Spring Step, and then next Sunday we'll be transitioning down the street around the block to the Boys and Girls Club here in Medford. So God has provided uh, richly for us and provided a great space for us to continue uh, worshiping Him as a community of faith here in Medford. Now, if you're like me, you've probably experienced a lot of change in your life. And you know that change provides a lot of unique challenges on the one hand, but also some really great opportunities on the other hand. So I can look back at my life. When I was a kid, before I entered college, we moved four times when I was six, eight, 14, and 16. Four different moves as a child. Then I went to college and then seminary. And then I got married to Marsha, and we have two beautiful girls. And then we uprooted our lives with some others and moved to the Northeast, to this great city, to start this church. And each one of those moments were significant points of change for me as uh, an individual. Now, what I've learned about moments of change is that what typically comes with the change is an opportunity to kind of pause and reflect and say, hey, what is this really all about? What am I about to enter into and what is the grand purpose of it all? So it doesn't matter if you're a first semester college student or you're uh, maybe engaged to be married or some other kind of major life change, a new job, but, but it provides an opportunity to reflect. And this is good for us because we need to ask the deeper questions in life. What is this all about? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Now, I think we would all agree that is important on the scale of these seasonal changes in life. But I think you would agree that we all, as people, if not we better, ask this question in an ultimate sense as well. Why am I here? Like, why am I here on the planet here? You, you got it? You with me? So, so what is this all about? What am I here for? And it was questions like these that drove 
the pen of Jonathan Edwards, a, a great pastor theologian. Some say he's one of the greatest theologians and philosophers America has ever known in the 18th century to pen a short but very dense work entitled The End for Which God Created the World. And you can glean what the, the, the substance of the book is about from the very title. He is asking the question, why did God create the world? What is the ultimate purpose? What is the ultimate aim? What is the final end goal of all of God's creation? So Edward's answer was the Bible's answer. And the Bible's answer is what I want to present to you this morning. Because you see, how, how that question is answered then will determine how we answer that question individually and to point to our current moment as a church, why we also exist as a church. So, so what I want to do is, is, is just twist, tweak a little bit Edward's title. And this morning, I want us to think about corporately the end for which God created this church. And we're going to find the answer for all of these questions in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Now, before we read it, let me, let me just give you some context here, okay? Romans 11... 33 through 36, is the exclamation point on Romans 1, 1 through 1132, okay? So just go read the book of Romans. People call it the gospel according to Paul. Paul writes his thesis statement in verse 16 of chapter 1, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for everyone who believes, the power of salvation for, for Jews and Greeks. And so he goes on to say then in the early chapters that both Jews and Greeks are in need of salvation because they have this universal problem known as sin. And he says that our sin separates us from a holy and just God. But toward the end of chapter 3 and going on, we see that God has provided the remedy for our sin and our, and our plight in separation from God that he sent Jesus to save us from our sin, to give us his righteousness so that God might be both just, holy, and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So then we find in the chapters going on that we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that God has given us his spirit, and by his spirit we cry out, Abba, Father, and all of these gifts are ours. We have everything we need to live life for God because God has done all of this in Christ, giving us the gift of salvation. And so now Romans 11, verse 33. This is his response to the salvation that is revealed in the gospel. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray one more time. God, 
we need your help to fill the weight of your truth. God, thank you for your revealing yourself to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not treat your word with any type of levity this morning, but that we would receive it as, as what it truly is, your word to us, that we might know you and love you and worship you. So God, would you do something very special by your spirit in these moments to open our eyes and open our hearts that we might respond to you in a worthy manner. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two points for you this morning. Okay, number one, the, the first task for us in light of these verses, 33 through 35, is to recognize that God alone is inexhaustibly glorious. All right, that's the first encouragement. Recognize that God alone is inexhaustibly glorious. We see this when Paul opens up the, the, the verse of 33 there, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He uses a word that points to the inexhaustibility of the nature of God's attributes. So just picture this. When we talk about God, we are not chilling out in the shallow end of the pool, okay? We, we all on the same page here? I mean, we are already out into the middle of the ocean, thousands of feet deep, instantaneously. So when Paul speaks of God, he knows he is speaking of someone who is absolutely infinite. Everything that we know of earth, including our lives, has an expiration date. We have limits. God has no limits. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. You can't search it out. Psalm 145, verse 3. So Paul then lists three of God's attributes. And when we're talking about an attribute of God, an attribute is any quality of his character that conveys his essence, okay? Now, I know that's kind of a mouthful, but just think about it. An attribute is any quality of God that, that conveys the, the essence of who he is, okay? So we can talk about the attributes of God. We can talk about God's love and his mercy. We can talk about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God. We can talk about beauty, goodness, grace, omnipotence. God is all-powerful. He's strong. We can talk about God's omnipresence. He is everywhere present. Wrap your mind around that this morning. This is who God is. And God is infinite, okay? This is another attribute of God. So you can tack on the word infinite to all of those other attributes. We can say that God is infinite in his love. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. He is infinitely merciful. This is the unity of God. All of his attributes are consistent. He is always consistent with himself. himself. Okay, so he has a holy love. He is just in his wrath. His righteousness is perfect because he is perfect. You see? So Paul then gets into a few of the attributes that stand out in the matters that pertain to our salvation. And he says, first, the depth of the riches of God. Now, it's, it's noteworthy to, to realize that the only other place that that we find 
a reference to the, to the depth of the riches of God, okay? Just the, the, the absolute riches of God is found in Ephesians 3, 8 when Paul is talking about having the privilege of proclaiming the surpassing riches of Christ. So what that tells us is that, that there is such a treasure, okay? I know, I know we all have to pay bills and I know we all have, you know, something in the wallet, hopefully, or a bank account or something. So we, we all get a little bit about currency and monetary value. I mean, th- there, is, there is absolutely uh, n- no bottom to the value of God, the treasure of who God is. And he displays his riches in that he brings both, both Jews, okay, the, the people of God, the chosen people of God through the Old Testament, and those who are outside of his people, Gentiles, he brings them both salvation. This is, this is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3 and Romans 9 through 11, or really 1 through 11. So, so God's grace is a global grace, and it points to the depth of his riches. Number two, we see the depths of his wisdom, right? I love this. This is one of my favorite attributes of God. So God not only possesses the ability to fulfill all of his intended purposes, okay, but he has the ability to orchestrate the means to get to his ends. That's wisdom. See that? Wisdom is is the ability of God to orchestrate the means to get to his intended end. So we see this most clearly in the cross of Christ, right? A crucified Messiah? Never. No, no, no human mind could come up with, with something this amazing, and yet this is the wisdom of God. His perfectly righteous son crucified on a Roman cross on the behalf of sinners like you and like me. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God has all knowledge. God knows you better than you know you. And this is a really good thing because this this is why God can care for you so intimately. This is why he can be trusted so readily because he knows us. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the rhythm of community. We said we can't minister to that which we don't know, right? So, so if I don't know that, that someone is sick or going through a difficult time, then I just don't know how to, I don't, I don't have that knowledge to then be able to come in and pray and encourage and, and support, okay? But God doesn't have our problem. He doesn't have limited knowledge. He has all knowledge. And he cares for us greatly. So all of this, God possesses riches, wisdom, and knowledge in their fullest excellence, and all of this points to his glory. We could say that the glory of God is the display of his manifold perfections. It's one way to put it. It's not the only way to put it, but it's one way. It's the display of his manifold perfections, who he is in his essence, It is the going public of his infinite worth. God is is more worthy than we can begin to imagine. And when he displays his worth, his glory is going forth. So to make this unmistakably clear, Paul cites two texts from the Old Testament in verses 34 and 35. 
The first is found in Isaiah 40, 13. We'll just read it here in Romans. Verse 34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So, so, so has anyone had a meeting with God and offered God some advice? I mean, I mean, we need counsel, right? Like all of us, 100% of us, we, we need some help, we need some counsel, we need some wisdom, we need some advice. That's why we started a counseling ministry here at Redemption Hill because we just understand this, okay? But, but God has absolutely no needs at all. He's independent, he's free, he, he, he has it all, he owns it all. So God, when he is working out his plan for the universe, he doesn't need to call us up and ask for our advice. He's got everything under control. And this is really good news to me because sometimes when I go to the grocery store, I can't even decide what kind of cereal I want. You know what I'm saying? Anybody identify with that? Yeah, it's good. Figured you guys could. But what is, what is worse than just little examples like that? Is, is when we, we do take the position of counselor, right? Not just, count, I mean, we're talking counselor with God. God, why did you let that happen? Why did you let my mom get sick? Why did you let me lose my job? Do you really know what's going on? God, don't you care? And God crucified his son on a Roman cross to let us know that he cares. And God can take the most evil moment in, in the history of the world and use it for the greatest good. So we may not have all the answers. Mysteries unknown are known to him, we sing. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Okay, this is from Job 41, verse 11. And if you want to just be humbled, okay, especially if you're complaining to God about what's going on in your life, just go read the book of Job. The, I mean, no one suffers, no one's suffering in this place like Job suffered. And Job had some complaints to God throughout this, this narrative. And so God basically says in verse thir chapter 38, he says, hey, Job, why don't you stand up and brace yourself like a man? Because I have a few questions for you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know? You, Job, you didn't help me with that, man. And he just question after question after question, like a, like a boxer that's just wearing out an opponent. And, and Job is, is, is receiving these wounds that cleanse away evil, as the Proverbs tell us. And his perspective is brought back into picture because he realizes then that, that wait, it's all from God. We can never, I can never give a gift to God that I might repay him. God is never in our debt. Our salvation is because of his sheer mercy and grace, and he is to be praised for this. So when we see God for who he is and what he does, then the only imaginable response is that we would praise him and worship him. This is the rhythm of worship, revelation of who God is and then responding back to his revelation. 
You got it? So, so when we come into worship, we would have no reason to worship if we did not know who this God is. That's why we center our services on the preaching of the word because the word reveals who God is. That's why we sing songs that, that speak of the truths of God. God, you are holy. God, you are merciful. God, you are gracious. God, you are forgiving. And all of that then elicits praise out of us. even though we don't have the ability to articulate how great he is. I mean, this is the, the blessed curse of a preacher and you, yours as well. Anytime you speak of God, we can never speak of him in a, in a worthy enough manner, but we can always speak of him truly as he's revealed himself and we can worship. So recognize that God alone is inexhaustibly glorious. This is where it begins with a revelation of who he is. And then we should then respond as verse 36 helps us to see by number two, spending our life to glorify God in all things. Spend your life to glorify God in all things. Okay, so this is the goal, all right? This is why you're here. If you're asking why, are you, why am I here, what is my purpose in life on this planet, at school, in my relationships with my roommate, in my family, in my neighborhood, when I'm having a bite to eat, as we're going to see in just a moment from 1 Corinthians 10, it's all for the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. These are words that are not only worth memorizing, and you can do it before we leave and the sermon's over, all right? These are not only worth memorizing, but they are absolutely worth staking your life upon, like every single second of your life upon. So let's break them down. For from him, everything in your life is a gift from God. Everything. Your very existence is a gift from God. You did not bring yourself into this world. God brought you into this world, ultimately. I know we can talk biology and birds and bees and stuff, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, God is the ultimate cause of all things. And so we were born because God brought us into the world. Our gifts, our skills, our desires, our relational capacities, it's all a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of, of lights above, James 1.17. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Paul addresses the Corinthians who are kind of puffed up in their, you know, relationships and with God, and they think they have it all together. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 kind of goes a little bit on a, a, a fatherly, you know, uh, discipline conversation, all right? And, and, and in verse 7, he just says, for what do you have, Corinthians, that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And this is how we should answer as well. For from him and through him. So not only does everything in our life come as a gracious gift from God, but then also all of the strength that we need to carry out his commands and fulfill his will, 
is also a gift from God. So God's grace gives us life, but God's grace also sustains us in the life that he gives. Now, if you're like me, I did not understand this for a lot of my early years as a Christian. The Bible provided more of a list of do's and don'ts. I mean, I understood that God loved me and I was trying to love him back in return and love others, the two great commandments. I got all that. But I didn't get this grace piece that that not only grace gets me into the Christian life for salvation, but grace sustains me every single day. That I am in need of God's grace as much on day 3,047 of the Christian life as I was on day one of the Christian life. And here's what happens, okay? When, when, we, when we try to live the Christian life in our own strength and we, we muster up our own self-reliance, then what is gonna happen? Here's just, a, here's just a promise, all right? This is what's gonna happen. You are gonna be tired, you're gonna be frustrated, you're gonna be worn out, and you're gonna be ready to throw in the towel. Because God did not make you to run on your own strength. It's just not gonna work. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now we see this in the Bible. Everything is for the glory of God. We see this over and over and over again throughout the pages of both the Old and the New Testaments. God is absolutely glorious. God's chief concern is his own glory. So in the mind and heart of God, do you want to know who's number one? It's not me and you, okay? It's God. God is most concerned with his own glory. There is no one more passionate for God's glory than God himself. So then when we read the Old Testament and we we see these refrains like in the book of Exodus 10 times and in the book of Ezekiel 67 times, these are just two of the books in the Old Testament, 10, 67, we see this refrain that they might know that I am the Lord. It's about him. It's really not about us. Why did God bring his people out of exile in Babylon? Isaiah 48 tells us 9 through 11, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it for how should my name my character my reputation my fame how should it be profaned my glory I will not give to another so God is not interested in sharing one ounce of his glory with anyone else or anything else in all of creation God is jealous for his glory and we also should be jealous for the glory of God and zealous for his glory to be made known. This is why he created us. A couple verses here. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory. 
Colossians 1.16, for by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Get this, all things were created by him and for him. The greatest gift God could give us is the gift of seeing his glory. His glory is made known in salvation, Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. And as we hinted at a moment ago, it's not just in salvation to adopt us as sons and and bring us into the Christian life, but it's also so that everything in our life should also be about the glory of God. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God. I mean, just, just work that out in your week this week. Just work it out. The way you walk to class, the way you drive to work, the way you speak to, to your uh, roommate or your spouse, the tone in your voice, the thoughts that you have when you go to bed, the, the moments when you're on the computer, when no one else is watching how you drink your cup of coffee in the morning. It's all for the glory of God. And at the very end, when all is said and done, God will make his glory known in comprehensive fashion. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 5.13, this picture of worship in heaven. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then Revelation 21 that depicts the new heavens and the new earth and this new city coming down out of heaven. Verse one and two, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and the city, listen to this, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. All right, come on. I'm going to come on. All right, hold on. Because this is the deal, okay? This is the deal. No one, I'm getting loud, sorry. (laughs) No one will tout your greatness or your glory for eternity. It's all his. It's all his. But here's here's our problem, okay? We We don't live like this day in and day out. Oftentimes, I mean we we are chasing after our own glory, right? We want what's in it for, for us. And so, so we do what we do 
so that we might progress and advance and even be made much of by others. Everyone says, just do you, right? This is the the language of the street. Do you, just do you, man. Just do your thing. Just do what you want to do. Just do whatever feels good to you. I'll do me, you do you. And that's the entirety of our problem. God did not make you to do you. God made you to do him. (laughs) Tweet that. (laughs) All right. So so we, we, we chase after our own glory. And this is the essence of sin and idolatry, right? Paul says in Romans 1, when he starts expounding our sin, he says, you have exchanged the glory of God and worshiped, created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So the curse of our existence is that we chase after lesser gods, these false idols that will never truly deliver what they promise. So these these little gods, lowercase g, of of sex and money and power and possessions and, and approval and comfort, and you fill in the blank, whatever it is, all of these can never deliver. They never satisfy us. In the words of Jeremiah 2.13, they are like broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the consequences of this are great. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is, this, is, this is our plight. Again, we have fallen short of his glory. We haven't measured up to his glory. And, and the wages of sin then is death. It's eternal separation from God. If you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not placed your faith in him, then you are spiritually dead in your sins. This is just the reality that the Bible says is true of your life. But here's the good news if that's you, and it's the good news for all of us who have seen Christ and trusted in him, that God sent his son, who Hebrews 1.3 says is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly glorious. He lived the perfect life. He died a cruel death on the cross so that if we look to him in faith, we can receive his righteousness, his life, his salvation, and then be freed to glorify God, which is the very reason we were created as we've established in the first place. So so, so Christian, okay, Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. Do you want to to glorify God with your life? Do you know one of the primary ways you can you do that, how you grow in, in your ability to glorify God? It is by apprehending more of his glory. It's by seeing more of his glory. And we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So just open up your Bible and behold the glory of God. Study the person of Christ and behold the glory of God. Because 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says this. It says, and we with all unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. This is how it happens. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how are we going to be transformed? It's by beholding the glory of God. And as we see him for who he is, then there is, if we're really seeing it, okay? And sometimes we're not very seeing it very clearly, which is why we're not changing much. But when we see him for who he is, then it is magnetic. We just want more of God. 
If there was a million dollars at the bottom of the stairs, I'm sure a few of it, if it was up for grabs, I'm sure a few of us would see who could get down the stairs the fastest, right? I mean, it's just, that would be wise, right? It'd be a pretty smart move, I guess. Share a little, but. So, all praise belongs to him. Christ died to restore our worship of God. And, and then there can be the objection. Well, why is God constantly receiving praise? I mean, is, is God arrogant? Is God stuck on himself? Is God narcissistic to, to receive praise constantly for all eternity? And this is where C.S. Lewis helps us, reflecting much of what is written in Edwards, which is, of course, reflecting what is written in the Bible, okay? We all praise that which is praiseworthy, and there is nothing more praiseworthy than God. So C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, says this, okay? At first, Lewis was put off by the idea of God constantly receiving worship, but then it clicked for him, and this is what he wrote. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers pra praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. D do you hear what Lewis is saying? He's saying when, when something is this praiseworthy and we delight in it because it is so praiseworthy, then the natural end is that we will want to express that. We will want to get it out because we are delighting in who God is. We can't contain this, all right? Husbands, I hope this is how you are with your wives, all right? So in my daily Bible reading, I just so happen to be in the Song of Songs, okay? And the Song of Songs is not about songs, okay? It's about... Other kind of sheet music, if you will. Um, I borrowed that from a, a title of a book, all right? So, 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 so this is about love and intimacy and, 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 and the exchange of, 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 of love between a, a husband and a wife. And so I was reading chapter one in and, and, and Solomon's writing, your eyes are like doves. And so I texted Marcia, your eyes are like doves. <laughs> And then I made up one of my own, but it was ridiculous. I'm not even going to tell you what it was. Um, <laughs> but but you, you get this, right? We praise what we enjoy. We praise what we value. We praise what we treasure. And here is the beautiful thing about God. John Piper has helped me understand this, okay? God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So God does not divorce the praise of him from our enjoyment and delight. 
we will be most joyful and satisfied when we see God for who he is as infinitely glorious. So let me give you, okay, just five implications for Redemption Hill. And I think these will hopefully help us as we transition to the club next week, but they should help us way, way, way beyond this month, okay? So, so, so let me give you, uh, number one, the first, the first encouragement. The glory of God should drive us to humility, all right? Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, okay? So let's just establish everything that happens in this church, every good thing that happens in this church is a gracious gift from God. It's not because we're great. It's not because we have a great plan. It's not because it's because God is at work and he is glorious. So this should drive us to humility to say, God, this is from you, not to us, but to your name. Give the glory. Number two, the glory of God should provoke gratitude. And this is related to humility. It's related to, to, to what we're seeing in, in Romans eleven thirty six. 36, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Why is, why is gratitude so central to, to the glory of God and praise? It's because when we are grateful, what we are doing is recognizing that the gift is coming from outside of ourselves, right? So we give gratitude when we recognize the generosity and the kindness and the love of someone else. Number three, the glory of God cultivates a deeper passion for God. The glory of God should cultivate a deeper passion for God. So again, as we see God as, as infinitely valuable, we're gonna want more of him and more of him and more of him. This is why we're trying to follow up on our, on our rhythm series, cultivating rhythms of grace. We wanna continue rhythms of grace for the next four weeks because to dive into the word is to obtain more of God. And to pray is to sharpen our fellowship and communion with God and our dependence on God. To not give him counsel, but to receive wisdom and counsel and gifts from him. And when we get in the rhythm of community, that's grace. And when we steward our life well, it's grace. And so we want to use these next four weeks to, to see God do a work in us. And when God does a work in us, that's when he works through us, by the way. Which brings us to our last two. Hold on, I, I got to say this quote. I almost forgot it. Let me give you this. Thomas Watts, this is one of my favorite quotes in all of life. Glory renders us intensely zealous. All right, one day I'm gonna preach a sermon on this word with a text from Scripture. But glory, so, so when we see, it just moves us. It's what drives us. It's what wakes us up. The glory of God cultivates a deeper passion for God. Number four, the glory of God elicits praise. Will we be a church that boast in the Lord? Will we be a church? When people talk about Redemption Hill, we just say, this is what he did. 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 And finally, the glory of God is the impetus for mission. So why are we going to take these invite cards this week and dish them out to friends who need a relationship with Christ and or a healthy church. Why are we going to do that? 
Why are we going to spend time praying for family members who may not be in the faith? Why do we do this? Is because the goal of missions is worship. It's so that people who are not worshiping God can become those who are following him and worshiping him with their lives. So this is why we share the gospel. This is why we do what we do as those who are seeking to fulfill the great commission of Christ to go and make disciples because the glory of God is at stake. Let this be the the motivating factor that was driving everything in our lives, our, our humility, our gratitude, our passion, our praise, and our proclamation of who Jesus is. So the point of Romans 11, 33 through 36, is simply this, because God made us for himself, we should give our entire lives for his glory. Let's pray. God, we, we pray that you would be gracious to continue to reveal yourself to us. Because God, we, we need to see you and and, and we get in the way so often our sinfulness and, our, and our, our inordinate desires get in the way of seeing you for who you are and responding then in worship. So God, we confess that we are often not a worshipful people. But Lord, we ask you to change us by your grace that is continuing to change us. Lord, we pray that you would, you would move us as a church to want more of you to want to make much of you, that the city of Medford and greater Boston might come to know Christ as the King of glory, the one who will be worshiped.